Hey, how you doing? I am Hank Shaw. I am the host of the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Welcome to another edition of the show. Today we are going to talk about old school Italian preservation methods and, and specifically old school Southern Italian preservation methods. My guest today is none other than Rosetta Costantino. She is the author of the fantastic book, My Calabria. She is, of course, from Calabria and lives now in the Bay Area of California and has so for many years. Our part of California is very much like Calabria in many respects, and so she's been able to continue those traditions for years and years and years. And I can't say enough about her ability with pasta, with preservation of vegetables, and she does salami and all of the good things that we love from Italian cuisine. We're going to learn a lot. We're going to go over a whole bunch of things that I've been doing as well for many years, and it's going to really, really give you an opportunity to get at some insight into the Italian preservation kitchen. So let's get right to it. Rosetta Costantino, I am so happy to absolutely be finally talking with you. We have corresponded via the internet and text messages for, God, years now, and this is, I think, the first time we've actually spoken in person. I know, actually, I think we've met in person, but that, that's okay. I'm glad to, uh, to be talking to you today. Maybe it was like, when was it? Would it would have been a, like a blogger conference back in the day? or Yes, yes. It was okay. way back when I think when the, the book first came out, which is, it seems like so long ago is 2010. God, yeah. I mean, we're both getting older. <laughs> so uh, I know you mostly from your, your initial book, uh, which is all about the food of Calabria. And uh, uh, you have to forgive me a little bit because I am growing up in New Jersey and we just say Calabria and I know that's incorrect and I have a hard time not saying Calabria when I know it. I know, I know in my head it's Calabria. Mm -hmm. and, and then you wrote a second book too about desserts, didn't you? Uh, yes, my second book is all about Southern Italian desserts. So it's sort of a collection of the five different regions um, of Southern Italy. So that ended up actually being a fun project. It wasn't one that was planned at all, but my agent twisted my arm to do it because <clears throat> she felt that there was no such book available. And um, in fact, I even looked in, you know, in Italian cookbooks and there was nothing uh, in Italy. Finally, I decided to do it. And um, we sort of traveled all over Southern Italy looking for, you know, traditional desserts that I knew, but of course I didn't know how to make them because as you know, most Italians go to the pastry shops on Sunday right. <laughs> to buy uh, their dessert. And, and also things that I discovered, we would just stop, you know, in a small village and a bakery and we would find something. It's like, oh, what is this? So it was sort of a, ended up being a fun project because uh, most of them I had to re-engineer, you could say, because I didn't have recipes. I mean, it's amazing. You know, we're, we're talking only, what, 12 years ago, 2010, when I started working on that book. And there was nothing on YouTube or even the Internet compared to today. And so I would, you know, I would look for a lot of things that I found in small towns. and was like nothing. <laughs> um, so that ended up sort of being a fun project, but it's all, it's all about dessert. So traditionals and a lot of desserts that I'd never heard of and recipes that, as I said, were never documented, not, not even in Italian. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I'm seeing, I'm getting the same kind of effect in uh, Mexico these days. Cause I'm, I'm very, very slowly working on a book about northern Mexican food, and it's the same thing where there's the traditional stuff that you know you're looking for, and then there's the 
unknown unknowns where you you show up and they're like, oh wow, this is amazing. Let's yeah. I need I need to eat this. But it's your My Calabria that your first book. That's the book that really. I mean, I'm looking at it right now, and it, and it is, uh, it is well loved, and it is a book that fits really well into this this season of uh, preservation on Hunt Gather Talk, because about half of it is has something to do with you preserving food for for later. You know, either either for just weeks later or sometimes for for months and even years later. Uh, yeah, this was one of the, my, I mean, I would have to say probably my favorite section. I, in fact, I wanted to include a lot more. <laughs> and, you know, she, they, they just kept on cutting more and more recipes from the, uh, the preserve section. But I felt when I wrote this book was really to preserve a lot of, you know, traditions, a lot of recipes that are not even, you know, done anymore, even in Calabria, which is sad, you know, because they're sort of, going the same directions we've gone, you know, fast food. <laughs> it's like, we're going away from it now, but in Italy, it's sort of, they're going in that direction. And so a lot of these preserves, uh, even like my cousins, they're not doing them anymore. I mean, part of it is also because there it's easier to find them and you can buy them. But I just wanted to make sure that I documented those because again, no recipes. It was everything my parents were doing. Uh, that I wanted to make sure, you know, they'll be there for the future generation. But I think uh, it's a pretty good section. So you actually grew up in Calabria, right? Mm -hmm. And you showed up, uh, you guys came out to the Bay Area in California when you were 14. Yes. Uh, yeah, I was 14 years old when we came. But um, I was very fortunate that, you know, my parents being so, I would have to say, finicky about food <laughs> and wanting to eat exactly how, how they ate in Calabria. Um, they kept those traditions alive because if they had, you know, blended in and just said, well, you know, we don't have those things here and we'll just eat what Americans eat. Um, I think I would have lost them, but they started right away. I mean, they brought all their seeds with them. You know, they started planting all the vegetables we were, uh, we were growing in Calabria. They uh, started foraging. <laughs> I mean, I still remember it, you know, I was like, I was what? I guess I got my license at 16. My dad wasn't driving yet at that time. And he would ask me to take him, you know, uh, to drive him. And, and, you know, he would go forage. Or my mom, you know, they would see things along the road. And I'm just sitting in the car, like scared to death. I'm like, oh, my God, we're going to get arrested. <laughs> or you know, I used to think, oh, people must think that we're poor, <laughs> you know, that we need food, which wasn't the case. But it was just the way, you know, they were, that they were used to it, that they wanted to go forage, you know, olives so they could preserve the olives or mushrooms, you know. And so it was just part of, of life. You know, it's just the way they were. And they they made sure that. They did exactly what they did in Calabria. It's funny. I, I, we both live in Northern California and I will often say that, you know, you're a sucker if you pay for olives, if you live in, in Northern California, because there are olive trees everywhere. And all everywhere. you need to know is yeah. how, to, how to cure them. Yeah. I, you know, I used to work in Silicon Valley, right. <laughs> and, and most of the, um, the landscaping in Silicon Valley were olive trees everywhere. And so we would go there on the weekend you know, right by where I worked and forage olives and people will stop and they would look at us like we were some sort of weirdo. They would go, what the heck do you do? They're so bitter. <laughs> and, and I would explain it to them. It's like, no, we, you know, we preserve them and we eat them. And, you know, they would just walk by and like, you know, thinking we're some 
sort of strange people shaking these off <laughs> and foraging olives. But you're right. I mean, they're everywhere. I mean, you don't have to you don't have to go very far. Most of the parks, you know, here in the Bay Area, a lot of them still have olive uh, olive trees. Sacramento, too. So let's start with that, because that's actually one of the things that I get asked about a lot. And I, I cure olives in really three main ways. I'll, I'll do the the brine cure with a green olive. I'll do the lye cure with a green olive. And then I'll wait until the dead of winter and then pick the, the black olives and do that oil cure. So those are the three ways I make olives, but there's lots of other ways to do it. And I'd love to hear, you know, kind of what is, what is, what's the Rosetta way? Uh, yeah, my parents, um, they only do it two ways, which are both documented in the book. Uh, they don't, they've never used lye or, or any, you know, any chemicals. They've always just um, salt. Um, so the green olives, we crack them and uh, we remove the pit and then we let them uh, stay in water uh, for as long as it takes. It can be a week, could be, you know, longer. And then towards the end, then we'll add salt and they'll stay in the water with salt. And then they're just uh, drained and dried and then preserved under olive oil. And we put um, hot peppers, garlic and wild fennel seeds. So those are the green ones. And, and then we do the black ones which you pick, you harvest them when they're ripe, they're fully black. And same thing, they just use salt to draw, to draw the moisture out. And when they're finally all wrinkled and um, they're no longer bitter, then again, we toss them with olive oil. Uh, there, I think we use uh, the ground hot pepper and, and wild fennel seeds. So, so those are the two, uh, uh, the two methods. They've never actually preserved the entire olive, oh. um, as you, I think you do, which a lot of people use lye to, uh, to get them to, uh, you know, uh, lose the bitterness. So the, the green ones are always what we call schiacciata, which means, you know, cracked or squashed. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. Interesting. I, so I, I used to do that crack method. I tend to not like it because they, uh, they just color really easily and, and you have to catch the olives at exactly the right time. Otherwise they won't crack. They'll just, they'll just mush. And, yeah. and it's yeah. hard to get the pit out. And, and so I, I kind of gave up on that method just because if I don't, if I don't catch my trees, right, which is often because it's olive season, the green olive season for you listening out there uh, is, is early fall. Yes. So it's uh, September in California usually. Yeah. Um, you need, yeah. You need to catch those right at the beginning and they need to be the right size also. Big ones, uh, right? Yeah. Because if, if they're too big, it's, they're not right. If they're too small, yeah, it's, you're left with nothing by the time you remove the pit. So there, there is a right size. And, um, and I guess the color, yeah, they don't stay vibrant green. Um, but it's the way they are, so we don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do the brine method. The brine method actually works really well. Um, and you see that all over the Mediterranean where it yeah. takes forever. You know, I mean, yeah. it's you brine your olives in September and then you eat them in spring. No, both of these methods that, you know, were done in, in my town. And I mean, they're done throughout Calabria were really to eat them fresh. I would gotcha. say, you know, by January, they were done eating these olives. So they were not meant to last year long uh, as, you know, some other preserves are. Um, and what we did here to try to preserve them longer is we freeze them. 
So we actually pack them in, in the jar mm -hmm. uh, really tight and then we freeze them and we've been able to preserve them that way over a year. It's like there were some years, you know, that the olives, we couldn't find any good olives because they had fruit flies in them yep. and they keep really well. We're amazed how well they keep in the freezer. Uh, yeah, but in Italy, are... in Italy, typically, like when my mom says, you know, when they used to make it when she was growing up, of course, they had no refrigeration. Um, they were meant to last just a few weeks. Okay. Uh, because of the, she said they would get soft and also they would go bad. They would spoil. And then they would, then they would move on to the black olives because, you know, the black olives were later. And then when the black olives, they were done eating them, that was in a month or so, they were gone. That was it. Um, Interesting so because not, that black olive method that you mentioned, where you you salt them down to get rid of the moisture, if yes. you keep them salted like that, they'll last until the second coming. I mean, they're they're indestructible. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They they they, they would, but as I said, they were for them. It was more like you know those couple of months. It was something for them to have. One of the greatest things about Italian cuisine that I think California has actually adopted pretty well is the celebration of a thing in its time. And then mm -hmm. once that time is over to move on to the next thing. Yes. Yes. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably someone who cares about where their food comes from and is excited to explore wild and unique foods. Foraged Market helps you do just that. Forage Market is an online marketplace full of unique ingredients and food products that ship directly from foragers and farmers right to your door. Whether you're looking for interesting ingredients or looking to grow your own food business, you need to check out Forage Market. Because of their ever-growing list of vendors, they have an awesome selection of ingredients and products. From pickled milkweed pods to ramp kimchi to dried wild mushrooms to craft pantry items and much more. Forage Market is sure to have something interesting for you. In addition to incredible food, Forage helps people connect. Forage.com has awesome features like direct messaging, so you can chat with the small business owners on Forage to explore new things and learn more about what's on your dinner plate. Head over to www.foraged.com and help put power back in the hands of independent food producers. So what are some of your favorite things to preserve because it, it, that section is very big and you like you said before you have uh you, you had to clip it quite a bit because of the publisher but if, if somebody's going to listen to this and, and really get excited about doing some some things with calabrian food and and preserves and that sort of thing walk me through some of the things that really really you look forward to every single year yeah i would have to say it's it's my summer vegetables because again those i get to have them you know, for the rest of the year <laughs> when they're no longer available. And they're probably, you know, let's say tomatoes, something or peppers. I couldn't live without them. So the biggest one for us is, of course, canning tomatoes and making the tomato paste. And then the peppers, we sun dry the peppers. Uh, we use those peppers quite a bit in our cooking. So we sun dry them. And then with the sun dried pepper, we also make our uh, red pepper powder. And as you know, we grow both sweet and hot. Mm -hmm. uh, so the sweet peppers, uh, the sun dried, we also use them during the winter months. Uh, they're reconstituted. We use them in br braised dishes or even, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Pepe Kruski, uh, which are like chips, the pepper chips. Oh, those um, are cool. That, are, I mean, they're amazing. <laughs> they are addictive, I would say. Um, so I, I, 
you know, I, I'll eat them that way as an appetizer during the winter months and in cooking. And then of course, uh, the powder, we use it in cooking and we use it um, in our sausage. And, uh, and the hot ones, uh, again, we use them in cooking and, and we grind it and also make a hot powder. So the tomatoes and the peppers, I would say, are two that I probably, I couldn't live without them. Well, let's talk really. about them. So you mentioned two things that I uh, piqued my interest. Uh, one is, is homemade tomato paste and the other is these, these sun-dried peppers. So walk me through each of those. The tomato paste is basically tomatoes that are cooked and uh, reduced down and typically, traditionally, you know, the way they're done in, in Calabria and Southern Italy, you would put it out in, in the sun and within two, three days, it's done because, you know, during the summer months, it can get a, over a hundred degrees and uh, they just basically flip it, you know, they rotate it and, uh, and it just naturally dries under the sun. Of course, I couldn't do it here. I mean, probably where you are in Sacramento, you could do it. But in Oakland, it doesn't get 100 degrees. For <laughs> if it does, maybe one day. So I came up with this technique for the book to use a convection oven. And it works really, really well. So you cook the tomatoes and you puree it. So it's sort of a, you know, um, a liquid tomato puree with salt. And then I put it in uh, trays. Uh, cookie sheet and um, and just let the convection oven do the work. And then as it starts drying out, then I just keep on flipping it, rotating it around and it dries beautifully into this thick uh, paste that then you can preserve it. You can preserve it, uh, cover it under oil in your pantry or just put it in the freezer. How, uh, how hot is your oven set? Uh, no, you actually, I, I mean, I don't, you don't want it too hot. So I usually do it at, uh, I can't remember if it's 250 uh, degrees, but let me see if I, if I can find it, or what the way I set it at. Um, 200. So it, 200. 200. 200 Fahrenheit. Yeah. So in Italy and in Sacramento, <laughs> we can in fact do it outside. And uh, one place that I have, found is a really great place to to make to your homemade tomato paste is the back of your truck because the inside of your truck will get or your car will get 130 135 degrees in our in a in you know in the summertime and there are no bugs in it so the <laughs> that's the key right so like i, I first tried this because I, I watched some some videos of old sicilian ladies doing this and they put it out and like well how is it not being attacked by insects every second and and they'll bring it in at night too. That's the other yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they do the same thing in Italy. They'll bring it in at night. But uh, but in the, if you have a convection oven, uh, you know, if you can go down to 200, 160, mine goes, as the low it goes, it was 200 when I when I wrote the book. Uh, the one I have now, actually, I can go much lower, but it, it works. it works really well. I get a sense that the lower the temperature, the better the tomato paste. Uh, yes. I mean, if you can, you know, if you can get down to uh, 120, 125, which I think my new one, my new oven gets down to that low because uh, it even has a dehydrator built in. That would be ideal. But most ovens, I think, is 200 is as low as they go. So that's why I wrote it at 200. Gotcha. Mine goes to 165 or 170. So I think all the newer ovens are have a lower. Yeah, setting. the newer ovens are much lower. So, so definitely... 
I I would go, you know, as low as it can. Between what, you know, uh, 120 to 200, you're going to be okay. So what, what do you think is going on there uh, in terms of flavor development of a lower temperature versus, you know, middle or higher temperature? Um, I mean, I, I've done it at 200 and I really don't see any difference. Okay. Because I've heard a lot of people like, oh yeah, no, if it gets if it gets over two hundred, you got a weird cooked flavor that you don't. Uh, I would agree. Over two hundred, okay. I would. Okay. But I think if you know two hundred and below, you're going to be fine. I mean, gotcha. mine is beautiful and it tastes amazing. It's to me, it's like pure gold. <laughs> how uh, how do you know when it's done? It gets a really really intense red color, and and it's very pasty. Like there's no liquid at all. No, I've made no it too. not at all. I mean, for, it's, it's for me, it's like clay. Uh, I don't know if I would describe it as clay. <laughs> I mean, I may take it longer than you do. <laughs> okay. Still be able to push it down, you know, with oh, the yeah, spoon. for sure. For sure. Oh, okay. Okay. But in theory, you could pick it up and roll it in a ball and your hands wouldn't be all be, wouldn't, would not all be really super messy. Yeah, yeah. No, that, yeah, okay. If you describe it that way, yeah. Then it is like Play-Doh in a way, yeah. Yeah, Play-Doh. Play-Doh is a better word, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> I've done that off and on for decades because I grew up in a part of uh, New Jersey where they were all Sicilians and from Brindisi and, and uh, Napoli. Yeah. So they, they would do that in the hot summer and they would have to take it in every night because New Jersey is not like Sacramento. Yeah. Um, and then it was cool because I, I, I saw that in your book as well. I'm like, ha same kind of Italians. Now, did your family move to the that area, the Bay Area, because there were other Southern Italians? And the reason I asked that is because where I live in Sacramento, there aren't any Southern Italians. Everyone is either from from Liguria or from Alto Adige or Genoa. And and they're like, there's no, there's almost some of the dishes that I know and love are alien to the Italians here in, in the Sacramento area. Yeah. Uh, well, my mom's brothers were already, I'd moved here in the 60s. Okay. And so they used to come and visit and, you know, they used to see how hard my parents worked because they literally lived off the land. And um, they finally convinced them, you know, to uh, to move over. But yeah, we have uh, San Francisco actually has probably the largest number of of uh, people, well, Italian immigrants, I guess, from my town, my oh, town okay. alone. <laughs> um, and then there are uh, we have friends that are from Puglia, but there are not many Southern Italian. I would have to say. I mean, that was one of the reasons why what really pushed me to do the book. Because I felt that no one knew about Calabria and Calabrian, you know, cooking, because uh, there were no restaurants at all in the Bay Area. Because the restaurants, as you know, were pretty much run by Piemontese, you know, Genovese and Lucchese. Those damn um, polenta eaters. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, I would say the same. But but there are few that you know were from. Uh, I mean, we had. When we moved here, of course, you know, our relatives from, from our town, but they had friends that were from uh, uh, Puglia and, and Calabria. Gotcha. And yeah, I, that happens a lot. All, where... The rest of them were all Northern Italians, which, as you said, they don't do any of these preserves at all. No, they do different stuff. Yeah. Um, so let's go. Let's talk about the sun-dried peppers, because that's kind of cool. It reminds me a little bit of there is a, a very strong tradition of something called chili pasado in northern mexico where they will take either hatch chilies green hatch chilies or poblanos 
and roast them as you mm-hmm. do peel them and and either and and they'll either dry them whole or they'll you know splay them out and seed them and dry them that way and then mm-hmm. when they dry they're they look like stained glass and then yeah. they they preserve forever and then you mm-hmm. use them in things like stews and guisados and burritos yeah. it's basically the same you know and um whether they figure it out or they learned it, you know, when peppers were introduced, you know, from uh, from the New World by the Spaniards who ruled, you know, um, southern Italy. They basically use them the same way. They um, we, we eat them fresh during the summer months, of course. We roast them and peel them and, you know, eat them that way or we use them in cooking fresh. But then we uh, we sun dry them. And uh, once they're sun dry, they, like you said, they're preserved forever. So you sun dry them like 100%. So they're dry. Yeah. So the way we do it, depending on what the intent is for, if we're going to use them in cooking, in dishes that are braised versus if we're going to use them for uh, to make the red pepper powder, we pick them at different stages. So for cooking, we pick them when they're starting to change color. So they're fully mature but they're still green going to yellow red. Hmm. And then they turn red as they dry. Ah, I see. Okay. If we want them, just use them for the powder, then it's okay to let them go red and dry them at that point. What happens is if you pick them when they're fully red and mature on the plant, they basically will dissolve once you cook them. They fall apart because they're so ripe. But by picking them when they're, they're fully mature, but they haven't turned fully red yet. They're sort of partially, they're going towards there, but they're still green. They turn red on as they're drying on the Rista, I guess it's called Rista in English. Rista, and, yeah. Well, it's actually then Spanish. They, they, and then they, <laughs> they hold up really well uh, when you cook them. I, that- that is a great tip. That is a tip I don't, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I've never heard that. That's yeah. Yeah. Well, what will happen is that you can try it. If you pick it fully, fully red, fully mature, once it dries and you cook it, it'll, it will almost dissolve. It just doesn't hold. Where the other way, it holds as a pepper. I mean, it doesn't fall apart at all. Hmm. And And for that, do you dry them until they're leathery or do you dry them until they're stiff? Uh, they are completely dry crunchy like okay yeah and then so how i I have i posted i think on instagram there's a video where i posted them how we string them and then what they look like when they're fully dry and how we you know uh put them away again what we what we've done to keep them longer even over a year we pack them in uh in freezer bags and we put them in the freezer and they stay literally forever (laughs) <laughs> where if you keep them out, you know, if you're not really on top of the weather and if it's hot, it gets humid, you can, you know, you can start losing them. They lose the color and sometimes you can get little bugs to so start eating them. Oh, yeah. I, I know that from my own peppers. I'm sure you've seen that. <laughs> so the, the freezer takes care of all those problems. <laughs> Hey, everybody. If you are interested in buying my cookbooks, I have three of them on my website, Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. That is at huntgathercook.com. You will get a 15% discount off the purchase of not only those cookbooks, 
but also any kind of other gear, swag, or apparel that we sell on the Hunter Angler Gardener Cook shop, you use the code Hunt Gather Talk. That's Hunt Gather Talk in all one word, and you will get 15% off your order of any of my cookbooks or of hoodies or shirts or stickers and that sort of thing on the huntgathercook.com shop. You will see my cookbooks and you will see apparel and stickers and all that sort of thing. Use the code huntgathertalk and you will get 15% off. Thanks in advance for your support. That's a good segue into my favorite way to preserve summer vegetables, which I knew about before I read your book, but your book really put things into clarity. And that's that Sotolio method where you take something in peppers is what I use the most, but I've seen zucchini and some other vegetables as well, where you, it gets like a vinegar, it gets hit with salt vinegar and it gets dried a little and then it gets olive. So it's like this, it's a very unusual preservation method that results in a very delicious product that um, the USDA seems to not like. <laughs> no, you know, in fact, when I wrote the book, I, I called and I wrote to them. And the final answer was, we know it works. You know it works because you know what you're doing. But we can't <laughs> put ourselves behind it because there are too many people out there that they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> so I think, I mean, I understand the reason why. But, you know, I, I insisted because originally they were going to take them all out, all those recipes. I insisted on it. And then they sort of put a clause there in the book, I saw. <laughs> you know, uh, but I mean, and I told them, I said, listen, this is the way it's been done. I said for thousands and thousands of years, I said, and it works. And this is why blah, blah, blah. And they're like, mm, sorry, uh, we, we can't, we can't put it out there that yes, people can do this because there are too many people who don't know what they're doing. Uh, you know, and you can tell if something goes wrong, um, they said, but you know, they're, they're concerned because they're people who don't pay attention, whether it's the cleanliness, whether it's, you know, the product that they're using. Uh, I mean, there are too many things that could go wrong if you're not careful. And, you know, they don't want to take a chance that one person gets sick on it. Sure. So I've only done this with three three things. I've done it with mushrooms. I've done it with zucchini and I've done it with, I have four things. I've done it with tomatoes too, peppers and tomatoes. So walk me through, I mean, I, I know my process, but you know it better than I do. Walk somebody through who's listening to this right now. Let's just take, um, let's take a, a, a nice, good bell pepper that you're going to preserve like that. How would you go about it? Actually, I don't think I've ever done bell peppers. <laughs> really? All right. I'll do bell peppers after. <laughs> we'll, we'll do zucchinis. Or we, I mean, okay. zucchinis, eggplant, mushroom, they're basically all the same process. We use the same process for all of them. So they're, they're sliced, you know, and then they're, they're salted, heavily salted. And the salt really what it does, it removes a lot of the moisture uh, from, let's say, the zucchinis. I mean, if you're done it with zucchini, you'll see it. Uh, you'll start with a mountain of zucchinis and by the time, you know, you salt them overnight, the next day you have a bowl full of water and zucchinis that have shriveled down. So then you would drain them, rinse them out, and then you, you, you cook them in, in vinegar. Uh, it's a vinegar, you know, a lot of them will do 
three parts vinegar, one part water. Uh, the mushrooms, I, I did them a couple of weeks ago, was all vinegar. And then, uh, and you cook them until they're tender. And uh, because which they is, get leathery. Which isn't very long. It's not very long. No, it, it doesn't take long, depending on the size. Now, zucchinis, <clears throat> you want to use those oversized zucchinis. You don't want to use the baby zucchinis that you typically would see, let's say, at the store, because they will fall apart. Uh, so this is, is a great way to get rid of those, you know, oversized zucchinis that they were, they were okay two days ago and you go now and they're like, oh my God, <laughs> now I have a, a three foot long zucchini. <laughs> so they're still tender, meaning they're not, you know, seeded and old, but they're larger in size. And, and you can find them at the farmer's market, um, you know, or if you ask, they do sell, you know, older, you know, bigger basically zucchinis um and so once then they're they're cooked with the vinegar they're drained again and put under a heavy weight or if you have a press you know in italy they they make these cute little press for these vegetables oh okay that they wring out all the all the moisture um and then we lay them out and um on a on a table that's covered usually we put uh, tablecloth and uh, and lay them out like uh, evenly one layer and we let them dry out until they're sort of uh, leathery I would say mm -hmm. and and then we just toss them with olive oil garlic and uh, zucchinis will do mint and hot pepper and then we pack them in a a crock pot is usually where I put them. <laughs> and um, you mean a pickling crock? A pickling crock, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And cover them with oil, and we put a heavy weight on it so they're always submerged under oil. And that's how I keep it in the pantry um, in a cool area. Uh, but when I wrote the recipe in the book, again, because as you said, the, you know, the USDA doesn't really approve these methods uh, with garlic. I told people to just put them in the fridge. Right, right. The, the the plus side of keeping them in the fridge, having done this for years, is that they they literally will last forever. I mean, I've had them for two years and they're fine. Yeah. Because one of the downsides of that is that the olive oil tends to solidify. So you essentially get olive oil butter that you've, and so if you want to eat them, you've got to actually take them out of the fridge for a couple hours before you want yes. to eat them because otherwise yes. you're dealing with olive oil butter, basically. Yeah. So a couple questions on that process. Number one, the when when I talk about or when you were talking about cooking them, I, I to my knowledge, it's you know with mushroom. I do this with porcini and I do it with zucchini and other things. It's not long. It's like no. a couple a couple minutes. Yeah, with mushrooms, actually, they they they're, they're it's very quick. Uh, and 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 even with zucchini, zucchini, <clears throat> you know, five minutes on the average, but it can take a little longer if they're really you know mature. Uh, much older um but yeah it does, no you don't cook them for a very long time because as i said you don't want them to fall apart right or if you do green tomatoes it's very short ah, green uh, tomatoes so it depends idea. on on the vegetables that you're preserving um so then the so by the way uh, for listeners out there if you're doing the 100 percent vinegar which is what i do with mushrooms i think you do it too also with 100 percent vinegar with mushrooms yep. save the vinegar and use it over and over and over and over again. I've I, I have this dark looking. It looks like malt vinegar, and it's porcini vinegar that I have used over and over again for years. 
what happens is when you cook the porcini in the vinegar, you get porcini flavor in the vinegar and the vinegar also concentrates because it's, it's evaporating a little yeah. far, it's a little mm -hmm. bit away. So you're getting moisture from the mushrooms, decreasing the, the acidity, but the evaporation, because you cook this without a, a lid, it kind of balances out. So it works. So it, it doesn't, it's, and then you keep using that. I've used that vinegar over and over again for years. And I just keep, it, use it like a mother almost where oh, yeah. you're, you're going to have to add more vinegar every year because you've got to, yeah. X, Y, Y, or Z, but the flavor of that vinegar that's used over and over again makes your, uh, your marinated mushrooms better. Wow. No, I've never done that. I mean, well, but I'm not lucky like you to find porcini. <laughs> I, I preserved some oyster mushrooms a couple of weeks ago. Well, you're way closer to porcini than I am. I mean, you just got to go north to, to Marin and Sonoma and Mendocino. I know. Or... We keep on talking about it. Then we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We still haven't done it. Right now. Um, they're there right now. So Are little... they there right now? Yeah, we're recording this in mid to late December. And the 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 coastal porcini season for you is November to early January. Um, okay. I I mean I keep on hoping to find them here, but here we're we're lucky. We find a lot of oyster mushrooms, and uh, uh, those are great also to preserve. I they are. Uh, I preserved uh, two jars a couple of weeks ago, and they are amazing. They're a wetter mushroom though, so like, yeah. So when so I, I do it a little differently and you tell me if I'm doing something wrong. So with zucchini and mushrooms and such, I will salt them until they sweat. Yeah. And so a couple hours. So I'll, I'll salt them in the morning and then, okay, they're super sweaty. And what I'll then do is I'll take a terry cloth kitchen towel, clean one, and I'll lay them all out in one layer and put another terry cloth kitchen towel over them and squash them. And then I'll boil them and then I'll, I'll put them in the, uh, and then, and then I'll dry them out again. And then I'll put them under the oil. So I do the squashing thing when they're when I know that the the salt has penetrated, but I don't I don't do it after the vinegar soak. What do you mean? So the thing is salted. We both agree yeah. on that. So then after the thing is well salted, that's the stage where I squeeze out the extra water. And uh, then I, okay. Yeah, and then I'll boil it in the vinegar for you know a minute or two, and then I'll lay them back out to to get leathery. Okay. Okay, so, I see what you're saying. You don't press them to get the any the moisture, the the vinegar. Right, because they've already been pressed, and then the vinegar. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it seems to work either way. You get a little bit more of a vinegar flavor in the end product the way that I do it, though. Ah, okay. And it makes me feel better because of the acidity and pH and microbes and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think there's plenty of. Um, you know, vinegar left. I mean, of course there is, because you you know, you can you're cooking them. That I think that's what helps to preserve it. If it wasn't for that, of course they would go bad. Process is really interesting because you're dealing with you're adding salt to the product, mm -hmm. which not only remo reduces the moisture content, but it increases acidity or increases the salinity. Yep. And the salinity limits the kinds of bacteria that can live on that on that yep. product. Yeah. And then you get the, you, you drop the acidity. It, it, it's funny because it's a kind of like a, a, a two-step. It, it is a lot like making salami because yeah, you're adding salt to the meat. Yep. You're letting the meat ferment to, to drop mm -hmm. the acidity, you know, to, to lower the pH, which you're doing, which with vegetables, it's vinegar. And then you're, you're drying it out so that yep. your active water content is very low. And so the, the same sets of processes are working at the same time. Except you have to kind of do it manually with vegetables because they're yeah. 
you know. No, I mean, I agree. <laughs> As I said, they have figured it out. And if you know what you're doing and you do it correctly, I mean, it works. It works. I mean, it works really well with red, with uh, uh, roasted bell peppers, I can tell you. And it's it's the only problem with roasted bells is a little bit like what you were talking about before. So I'm going to have to try it a bit with with transitional bell peppers, because the when you roast a red bell pepper and peel it and then cut it into like, you know, big sheets with no seeds mm-hmm. or anything. Uh, and then you go through this process like we're talking about. So salt, vinegar, and then a little bit of a drying process. It works pretty well, but after about six months, they do dissolve. Yeah. And, and they're still good because you can use them in things, but they're not, they're not like the ones you buy in a jar in a store. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, what we do to preserve the roasted peppers is we freeze them okay. and they, they hold up really, really well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we do that with, with hatch chilies and chili poblanos as well. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you know, I mean, I, I like the idea of pressure canned or preserved uh, roasted bell peppers because it's just, it's an ingredient I use a lot in my cooking. Yeah. Yeah. And also, you know, if you don't have a huge freezer, <laughs> it's hard to put everything in a freezer. Well, yeah, I've got two freezers, but I'm a hunter, remember? So it's yeah. usually filled with game, you know? Yeah, we, we, I, I have two freezers also. <laughs> it's like all, all of these preserves. What other vegetables will you use this process for? So we've talked about mushrooms, we've talked about zucchini, and talked about a little bit about peppers. Uh, eggplants. Eggplants, okay. Yeah, so we do eggplants, zucchinis, mushrooms. I think in the book I also put in uh, green tomatoes. Mm. So that the, that works really, they, they work really well also, the green tomatoes, you know, at the end of the season. I have two recipes for green tomatoes that in Calabria are very popular. They actually do them also under salt in Calabria, that they put green tomatoes um, just packed under salt. Oh, that's interesting. Another way, that's another way that they preserve them. But I put in um, the pickled one and I put in a, uh, a jam. So they also make uh, a marmalade with the green tomatoes, which is amazing. You would never think of, you know, green tomatoes to make a jam, but it it works. It works really, really well. It's really tasty. Is that recipe in the book? Mm-hmm. Hmm, okay. I must have missed that one. Yeah, I, I like- think I only managed to get two two jam recipes. I think I put in the um, uh, the green tomatoes and the figs. Okay. Uh, because, you know, Calabria is famous for its figs. And of course, we would sun-dry figs, but would also make uh, uh, jam. Uh, so those are, are both in the book. I have a, a mission fig tree in my front yard and, and every year we get way too many figs. So it's, it's one of those things where you either make a jam or there's a cool Greek thing. It's hard to say, like a cake almost it's called Sikomaita, where it's, it's nuts and chopped figs that are, that are drying and a little bit of ouzo for preservation, a little touch of salt. And they're, they're basically mashed into like hockey pucks like little hockey pucks mm-hmm. and they're they're wrapped in grape leaves and then left to dry in the sun it's sort of like a proto fig newton with a little bit of ouzo thrown in mm, sounds good they are they're really good and I, I i grew up the town i grew up in was like it was italian it was puerto rican it was greek uh, a lot of uh like sort of waspy uh white americans too and and so like but we had enough ethnic diversity where you know, your friends would bring things to school and, and, and that 
you know, you may have never seen before, but everybody's like, oh, that's kind of amazing. <laughs> and it's funny, you talk about the Italians, you know, go to the, the pastry shop on Sunday to get their, their desserts. And we had three in, in my hometown of Westfield in New Jersey. And absolutely, Bavella's was the one that everybody wanted to go to. And there's a big line <laughs> out the door. No, I mean, it's still a tradition, you know, even nowadays. I mean, in the old days, of course, it was a treat on Sunday and people really didn't have the ovens, you know, that we have nowadays, of course. But even today, I mean, they've kept that tradition, even though now they have, you know, all the equipment to make all the desserts at home. People still do that on Sunday. They go to the pastry shop and get their pastries. So they don't really bake the way we do here. It's more traditional to do the holidays dessert, like, you know, for Christmas mm -hmm. or Easter. Um, and those are the ones I included, you know, in the book, in, in my Calabria. But all the all the other desserts like that I have in my second book, other than some cookies, no one bakes them. They pretty much all go to the pastry shop on Sunday because, you know, a lot of them are time consuming than they can buy them. There's <laughs> yeah. a lot to be said for someone who does it a million times versus you who do it twice a year. Yep. Quick shout out to one of our sponsors, and that is Filson. Anybody who knows me knows that I wear Filson because Filson doesn't break. It isn't cheap, but neither should it be because it lasts forever. And one of the greatest things that I have of theirs is their Mackinac jacket. If you're not familiar with this jacket, it is a kind of like a, a heavy boiled wool overcoat that you can wear anywhere from kind of cold to really cold. And for over 120 years, Filson has been the most trusted outfitter for this kind of outdoor sport, trade and adventure wear. And for almost as long, they've been making that Mackinac cruiser jacket. Originally patented way back in 1914, this jacket has become a legend in its own right, spanning generations as the hallmark of an outdoor coat. Made in the United States, it's heavyweight, all-wool body, has classic snap-flat pockets, and a full-width rear pocket that I use as a game vest when I go grouse hunting. This jacket has often been imitated and never been matched. They last forever. I've had mine for at least a decade, and I know some that have lasted for many decades. Shop at filson.com for the new limited edition green and black plaid Mackinac jacket. I have the forest green, but the green and black plaid sounds every bit as cool. Thanks to Filson for helping to sponsor this show. Back to it. So what are some of the uh, colder weather preservation things that form part of your year? Because, you know, we're, we're talking in winter now. Well, during the winter, of, of course, January for my parents, and we still have sort of kept that tradition here, was to make our salumi because, oh. um, you know, we didn't use any controlled method or refrigeration or anything. We used just Mother Nature and salt <laughs> to uh, to make our, our sausage, our sausage and copa. So this would be January is usually the time that we do that. And uh, I also preserve, I make my candied orange peel in, uh, you know, January, February timeframe. Uh, those are the things pretty much that uh, we would preserve this time of, you know, in the next couple of months. I think my listeners would really be interested to hear you, uh, how you do the, the copa and the Calabrian salami, because we're going to have whole episodes on salami and, and curing meats, but your perspective is going to be a little bit a little bit different because you come at it from a very southern italian traditional traditional method which is not necessarily how everybody else does it 
yeah, I mean, you know, we've done it the same way. My parents um, have always done it, but I didn't write about it in the book. Again, it's one of those things that if you don't know what you're doing, <laughs> you better not do it. So, but we still do it. We're just using salt and, and or, you know, the sausage recipe that it's in the book, except you add more salt uh, than the one that it's fresh. And then we just hang it to dry in their basement, which is perfect because it's cold, but we always wait when the temperature is perfect. You want mm -hmm. rainy, sort of cold, foggy weather because you need that high humidity and you want, you know, the cold. But as I say, they really know what they're doing and I've learned over the years. So if they see that things are not progressing right, or let's say the weather is changing, you know, California, you can go from cold, rainy, and then the next week it'll be 70 degrees. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We've had years where they just took it down and they cooked it. Oh, okay. They didn't let it go through, you know, because they knew it would have gone bad. It would have spoiled. That's interesting. So so they don't use any saltpeter or sodium nitrate? No, or? nothing, nothing. No, it's always the way it's always been done. And people still do it that way. That's uh, interesting. In Calabria. I mean, to be honest, I mean, sodium nitrate or saltpeter, which is its predecessor, have been used for 2000 years in Italy. So it's not like it's. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, you can find it, you know, as you know, you can find it naturally in celery. I mean, there are different things that have it. Uh, but no, they always just um, have done it just with salt. That is definitely a high wire act because uh, I've seen, uh, I actually did an article a decade ago, maybe more than that, of a Genoese family in the Stockton, California area that did the exact same thing. They, all they did was they made the same recipe every year. They only used salt and they had the same basement that they hung their salami in mm -hmm. every single time. And yep. there's a... For you guys listening out there, uh, there's a you may or may not know that the the microbes in the air of a space change. So my kitchen's going to have a different set of you know aerial and and things on the wall and the ceiling. I'm going to have different microbes than than you will have, and and yep. Rosetta's going to have different mm -hmm. microbes than, than we will have, and and these they build up over time to the point where. You've heard in, in France, in many places, they just let the grapes go. Well, you can you can pull that off if you've got the right yeast in the in the air and in the environment over generations. But if you just started it, your salami or your wine or whatever, who knows what's going to jump on? It? Yep. <laughs> no, it's the only place we make it and it works. <laughs> That's really interesting because, you know, the, the question, I know everybody out there is listening, well, how long does it take for that to happen and what will happen and da, da, da. The answer is nobody knows. Nope. <laughs> there is a way to sort of get there, which I, what I've done over the, and I've lived in my house since 2004, is to make salami in the same place using things like starter culture and sodium nitrate and whatever, because the same bugs will get in the air and you, but you're actually sort of seeding them with the right yeasts and bacteria and whatever by using the uh, the the commercially available products which do two things it makes your environment more conducive to the it gets you closer towards creating a, an environment like what risotto has and the other is um you're almost certainly not going to have it screw up because you're kind of ensuring the process by using starter cultures and, and uh, yeah. nitrites. 
Yeah, I mean, and that's the reason why, you know, the commercials, they, ha they use it because they need to make sure they're getting a good product every single time. But as I said, that was one of the reasons why I didn't, didn't put it in the book. I didn't include it in the book because, you know, my parents were like, well, we know what we're doing and we know exactly how to do it. <laughs> I said, but most people just doing it this way with just salt, if they run into problems, then how, how are they going to know that, you know, it's going bad? We've had, I probably, I would say either one, at least twice, I think, since we've been here that the weather changed on us and, and my parents took it down and, and they cooked it. And uh, so they didn't, you know, they didn't end up throwing it out. I mm -hmm. mean, which it would have happened if they would have left it, you know, in the warm weather. Uh, but as I said, they knew exactly what was going on. They knew exactly what it's supposed to look like, you know, the yep. next day and a week later and two weeks later. And a lot of it is just doing it. You know, you learn by seeing it. Next month, we'll, we'll, be, we'll be making our sausage. <laughs> yeah. I tend to hang sausages in the winter as well. I usually do it after hunting season because then I know, I know what kind of meat I've got in the freezer. You know, I get pork fat. And then, so my, my sausages are almost always pork plus game meat. One thing you've talked about cooking the sausage. Do you guys have a, a tradition with cotequino? No, we don't. Okay. Uh, not, not, it's not a Southern Calabrian. I mean, Southern Italy. It's a, it's a Northern Italian. It is. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I guess that makes sense because it's cooked with lentils. Yeah. But that's our big New Year's thing. So, I mean, I, I, I love it and I, I cook it, but no, it's not something that, yeah, that we, that we make. It's not traditional uh, of Southern Italy. So we talked a little bit about this off the air, but one thing that's sort of hanging out there that I get, I get asked it a lot. I bet you, you get asked it as well is you and I both make quite a lot of pasta and we make pasta with flour and water. We make pasta with, with eggs and sometimes a little bit of oil and blah, blah, blah. So usually only 99% of the time, both you and I are going to make a set of pasta and we're going to eat it. And either the same day or the day after, but people ask us a lot about, drying pasta and preserving pasta and i'd like to hear your experience with it you told me a little bit about it off the air but uh it'd be good to, for people to hear it yeah um i mean as you know we are our pasta is just flour and water um so the no eggs traditional pasta you know that i i wrote about it in my calabria and i've tried it with just flour and water i've tried it also with durum wheat uh because you know i do make pasta with uh just with 100 percent durum wheat and water. I, I ran an experiment, you know, during COVID when I started um, doing videos showing people how to make fresh pasta, uh, which is flour and water. And people were asking that question, you know, can, can I dry it? And I said, well, let me try it because we, we've never tried it. My parents, you know, my mom would always make pasta and cook it within the day. And I tried the experiment. I did it over a day, two days. I went all the way up to a week. And I cooked it, you know, as I dried it each day. And I just felt that it doesn't work. <laughs> it just doesn't come out right. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do because the shapes are also different. So different thickness and, and the drying is not controlled like the commercial pasta is where they're controlling, you know, the temperature, the humidity, the speed of the drying. And also it's, it's pretty uniform, the pasta that you tend to buy. And with the hand-shaped uh, pasta, I just felt that it, it just didn't come out right. So 
I, I told my students, I always tell them, if you want to make it a head, because, you know, it takes a lot of time, these hand-shaped shapes, the best thing is to freeze it and then cook it frozen. Don't let it thaw or anything. Yeah. Uh, but from my experience, I found that drying doesn't work well. Yeah. I, the only time I've ever had any kind of success, it's funny because it, it reminds me a little bit about what we just talked about with salumi, is... I have found that if I make a flour and water pasta, so, you know, durum and water, usually it's just durum and water mm-hmm. with, and then I make it out of it with, you know, with a pasta roller so that they're uniform. So it's either Tagliatelle or something like that, not the hand shapes. By the yeah. way, this is a side note for like, if you haven't already decided that you need to buy my Calabria, you need to buy it just for the pasta shapes alone because the, <laughs> Rosetta's handmade pasta shapes in that section of the book are worth the price of admission. They're super cool. But we're not talking about that when we're talking about drying pasta, because like she just said, the unevenness makes them weird. I have noticed that if you make a a very simple derm derm and water pasta shape with a machine so that they're they're uniform. And it's that, you know, I'm, I'm looking out the window right now. It's foggy and it's cool and it's just not. It's salami weather. You can dry pasta like that, but if it gets too dry in your house, and I and I dry it in the garage, so it's it's dried cold. You know, it's dried at like forty some odd degrees in humid conditions, and that actually works quite well. But that is the only circumstance that I've ever had where you can make pasta that you will you can eat six months later and and, you, and you'll be happy with it. Huh. I've never tried it, but it would make sense if it's laminated. You know, if you're doing it with a pasta machine and it's all even. I could see that work. Yeah, I tried it with all the shapes that I was, you know, videotaping um, mm-hmm. during COVID. So it was uh, uh, cavatelle, orecchiette, you know, the kneading needle pasta. So they're yeah. all different thickness. And those are the ones that I tested, but I never thought of testing, you know, uh, pasta done with the rollers, with the machine. Uh, but that would make sense to me that, that that could work. Yeah, like I tried cavatelle too and like, huh, these are edible, but they're not very good. <laughs> yeah, not the way it should be. Uh, little... But, you know, freezing, as I said, works really well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you freeze it and, and you cook it frozen, um, it, it that's the best way if you want to make it ahead of time. Before I let you go, I kind of want to hear about some of your travels in southern Italy in, with, in terms of preservation. Are there any things that you came across in your travels? that were just weird and, but cool, weird. What I mean is like, like some, uh, the first thing that springs to mind are the, the Lemposconi, the, the little bulbs of, uh, of the grape hyacinth plant that people eat. Oh yeah. The Lemposconi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, um, so are there, what are the kind of the unusual preserved things that you've come across in, in Southern Italy? Hmm. That's definitely one that, you know, here you don't see it and uh, you know, I grow them. <laughs> oh, uh yeah i have the seeds if you want them <laughs> not a bad idea <laughs> um and they, they just keep on coming back you know just like other bulbs <laughs> they just keep on spreading uh one that i, I mean i love and, and here we i don't know if they grow here but uh it's the wild artichokes and they grow on the coastal areas of calabria so when we go there, you know, with my culinary tours in May, we always get to eat them. They're very 
I don't know how to describe a spiny. That's all I could say. So the Cardoni. Uh, really, no? really, really long thorns. And they're very, very small. Yeah, and it's Cardoons. Well, I don't know. Are they? Yeah, Cardoons it's totally. Here? It's Cardoni. It's Cardoni. Yeah, because um, A, I have them in my yard. And B, uh, if you go to the Sacramento of San Joaquin Delta, uh -huh. like just, just west or just east of you, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting like hundreds and hundreds of those plants. And it's you just exactly described um, the, the so-called artichoke on, on a cardoon when the cardoon goes to flower. But these are not cardoons. I mean, it's like an artichoke plant. Yeah, so cardoons and artichoke plant are, are exactly the same. Okay, because I thought let, cardoons... Let a cardoon I mean, go I'm to thinking, seed and you'll see. <laughs> ah, okay, because I thought cardoons were more like, you know, the big stock like that you, that you cook, that you eat. Sure, but that's in the dead of winter. But if you let the same plant go to seed it sends up a big giant stalk like an artichoke does and it'll be covered with the exact same flowers except mega super spiny and much smaller okay and and they have i mean a typical the way they look this plant would have hundreds of these yes yeah okay okay i didn't know they existed here um but yeah that's one that Oh, uh, I mean, they're amazing and they preserve them. You basically eat them fresh, you know, uh -huh. but all you're left is the heart. There's nothing else left. Right. Uh, by the time you clean it, it's just tiny little heart. And so when we're there during May, we'll also get to taste them fresh. They do them sliced, sliced very thin. We eat them as a salad or they preserve the heart or they make a, with a crema like, you know, like a cream. They just puree okay. it and then toss it. Uh, with risotto or with pasta. I mean, they are so good. <laughs> but okay, I need to look for it. I need to That's inspiring to both of us because it's like, hey, I've I have I'm like if I go to my backyard, I'm looking at you know five plants right now. I've never done anything with the flowers. I eat the stalks in the dead of winter when which is when you eat cardone because otherwise they're bitter as hell. And then, uh, but I've always just let the birds get to the to the uh, the flowers. Here, here's a fun fact: you can curdle milk with uh, thistle flowers. Yeah, any thistle. Yeah, or yep. fig leaves. <laughs> oh, fig leaf too. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, yeah. <clears throat> you know that white when you break it off, it's got mm -hmm. that white milky. Uh, the latex, yeah. Yeah, that comes off. Yeah, when I was a kid, that was my favorite way to do it. You know, because my dad, of course, made fresh ricotta uh, in the country. But when I was at home at times and I didn't have it uh, for breakfast, I would just take <laughs> a cup of milk, warm milk, and then just put the fig leaf. And uh, it becomes like yogurt, jello-like. Yeah, that works. Would you have to work. break the fig leaf or just put the fig leaf in? No, you need to break it so you have, uh, you know, that white milk. Okay, that's a yeah. cool deal. So you, yeah, so you, yeah. take a, you take warm milk and you crumble up a fig leaf, you know, like squish it. And no, then, no, uh, you don't crumble it. You just take it off, you know, when you break it, right? The yeah. stem will put uh -huh. out this white, just like a... Uh, a green fig, right? If you cut okay. it, if you remove it, has that white milky liquid. Mm -hmm. And that's enough. Yeah. That's enough. That's all you need. Yeah, it works. I'm totally trying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's super cool. Like, yeah, I will uh, I will ping you when I see my own backyard cardoon starting to set little artichokes. And yeah, they are incredibly spiny. I, I've been very put off by uh, working with them because like, it's just, and they're armored. Oh my God. I mean, they wear these thick gloves, you know, just to, to forage them. And then these ladies also, they do the same thing. You know, they wear gloves 
to clean them because they're just they're long spines. I mean, <laughs> yes, really they are. They're evil. <laughs> yeah, send me a picture. I can send you a picture of what it looks like the ones in Italy that they forage. Yeah, I, I'm ninety uh, percent sure it's going to be a Cardone. Ah, no, they're they're they are amazing. They're literally, I mean, they're a delicacy. There are you know, more of those in the Sacramento Delta than you could ever eat in your entire lifetime. I've wow. seen I've seen football fields full of them. <laughs> Okay, I need to, I I need to find out. If there's and you know place. what else is in the Delta in the spring is wild asparagus. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. That was the other thing that I've never seen here. That you know we used to forage and in Calabria in the month of April, right around Easter time was about mm-hmm. the time that they would pop out. Same here. Wild asparagus. So that's in the Delta, and there is a lot of scientific debate over whether asparagus is native to this hemisphere or not the it's leaning towards no there's some evidence that indigenous people ate asparagus so but it's not conclusive at regardless europeans have brought it all over the place much like uh <laughs> thanks italians for the funnel that's invasive the wild funnel that's right <laughs> <laughs> it's not become a weed <laughs> italian herb uh, yeah, I mean, it's so it's this is one of the things why there's the Italian food is so good in California is because the climate is almost identical. And yeah. the Italians who came here brought their things and yep. their things really like it here. So, yep. Ah, OK. And, and they look like the ones in Italy because I've seen pictures mm-hmm. here of what they call wild asparagus and they don't look the same. It's the same. Uh, it's okay. it's uh so the trick is, though, if you pick it, you pick the, the stalks amid the dead, you know, you got to spot the dead plant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they'll be at the bottom of it. Yeah. <clears throat> but I mean, they look just like an asparagus, except they're paper. I mean, they're pencil. They're very, very thin. Typically, yeah. So in the Delta in California, they're feral, really. So they're, um, it's asparagus that has gone, because the Delta used to be the world's largest producer of farmed asparagus no longer because it's for lots of reasons so it's gone feral all over that region in march and april there are places where you can pick more than you could ever even eat or preserve wow okay you need to tell me where to go <laughs> okay pick yeah pickling by the way for those of you everyone's like well, okay well how you preserve it so i i pre- i pretty much only pickle asparagus that's the only way other than freezing is, is the only other way i preserve yeah no we would eat them fresh i mean that was a treat yeah you know, in the spring months in, in Calabria. So, uh, but I never seen them here, the, like the ones that, you know, we would forage there. And I've heard about it. And and some of the picture I had seen, they just look different. I'm like, well, no, those, these are not the same. Uh, it's a little I, different. It's a little different because in Europe, they're, they're, they truly are native. And, yeah. and so in the U.S., you will often find farmed asparagus that's 10, 15, 20, 30 generations feral so it's okay it's somewhere in between okay any other fun weird preserved things that you've come across hmm. what about fish and seafood i guess some um, something that you find in calabria but it's very rare to find it even nowadays <laughs> you have to go with me on my culinary tour to taste it um is uh, sardella which I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's their neonatal anchovy sardines that are harvested when they're they're like at the very stage. They're still white. What do they call it here? White bait? Oh, okay. So they're like the size of a digit on your finger? 
Yeah, they're the size of, like in my town, we call it Rosa Marina, which means rosemary. Okay. They're literally the size of, you know, if you were to take a rosemary. Needle? Needle. That's the size. Oh, wow. That's and crazy. they're white. Yeah. So, and you can see why it's no longer allowed. Because, you know, <laughs> yeah. In a cup, you literally have, you know, 10 million <laughs> anchovies or sardines that, you know, are better uh, left there for the dolphins. Um, but in the old days, this was, you know, what they would be doing from uh, about mm, February, you know, March, pretty much in the spring is when they would harvest it and, and they would preserve it. Uh, and so it, it's it's considered a delicacy, uh, but it's only allowed nowadays for like, I don't know, it's less than a month that people uh, can harvest and not commercial any longer. And so if you know people that do it, that preserve it, then you get to taste it, but you can't buy it anymore. In the old days, you used to be able to buy. It. And if you do buy it, in fact, people even collaborate will tell you and I won't buy it. It's, it comes in frozen from China. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, but if you want the local, you know, if you know someone that, that makes it, then you can still uh, taste it. But, uh, but yeah, that's for that. Those are basically preserved under salt and lots of pepper. Uh, that's another place where a red pepper comes in. Uh, the, gotcha. the sweet and the hot. And it's like a spread. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it, but it's really, really good. Uh, something that, yeah, I didn't, you know, didn't write about it, didn't include it in the book because it's not something you would be able to make here. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there's a, we have a nice herring run right now in the San Francisco Bay that comes to right around this time of the year. And we get anchovies in the summer, um, mm -hmm. but not little teeny ones. Yeah. Now we also preserve, you know, I, I preserve anchovies here also. Yeah. I've, I've never been able to preserve anchovies to get them that red color. I make bocorones for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. the, you know, the white anchovies, yeah, but yeah. those only, those only preserve for a couple of weeks. Well, those are, those are just fresh. Yeah. That you just, uh, yeah. I, I have that recipe in the book also that you just marinate them, you know, with, I do a mixture of, uh, lemon juice and vinegar. Sure. Uh, but I do the one under salt. I do them every year. You How know, have you got, like, I've tried it three times now and I've never been able to get them to turn that red color. Huh. I uh, know mine are better than what I can buy. I mean, you need nice big ones. You don't want the skinny, you know, the small one. Uh, the ones that are small, those I'd love to just, you know, uh, fry them, deep fried. Mm -hmm. um, but they need to be, a, you know, a good size. Otherwise, by the time you preserve them, you end up with very little. But if you could get a, you know, a nice size anchovy, I mean, all I do is like it's in the book. I just gut them and pack them under salt. You just do one layer. And you put salt and just keep on stacking it up. I think I did a video that I posted on on Instagram during COVID. I'll uh, I'll look that up because I've I've done that and they've been okay, but they've never gotten that pretty, you know, that pretty ready red color that you. Yeah, that really looks, good. I mean, did you let it dry out? I mean, because you're supposed to keep them moist. So you put a, as the recipe says, a piece of wood. And then a river rock, a heavy river rock uh, that keeps them pressed. That's critical that they're pressed, but that they're always moist on top. So if you let them dry out, let's say you put them away. And I've done that where I forgot <laughs> that I had <laughs> these anchovies downstairs. Um, then they, they can dry out. Uh, but what you need to do is stay on top of it so they don't dry out. And if you see it, that they're drying, then you just make a, a, a solution of water and salt Okay. And, and put that. But if they stay moist, I mean, they're, they're wonderful. As I said, they're better than what I can buy. 
I'm going to give that one more try because I think I don't, I don't think I've had them pressed underneath a, a, a salt slurry before. I think oh, I just no, buried them to, in salt. You need to do that. And it okay. has to be a piece of wood, a round circle of wood, and a heavy river rock, nothing else. <laughs> it's got to be a river rock. But, um, and also they need to be extremely fresh. So right. ideally you want to <clears throat> catch them, you know, that, that day, that morning and do them right then and then. You don't want to buy them that they've been caught for a day or two because, you know, anchovy sardines, as you know, they're oily. And if they're not clean, if they're not got it, they, they go back right away. Yeah. Yeah. But that's easy for me because uh, we use live anchovies for bait when we fish in San Francisco. So, yeah. oh yeah. And, and anybody listening to this in the Bay Area, there is a bait shop. It's like a bait place where you, where we get the live anchovies have sent people there and they have been able to buy them. It's right on the water. Of course, it's next to the Giardelli plant in San, San Francisco. I've seen people walk up there and buy, a, you buy them by the scoop yeah. and they're live when you get them. No, that's the best place to go buy if you want fresh anchovies. Cause people always ask me and I'm like, well, we're kind of lucky that we know someone <laughs> you know, <laughs> who fishes them, but um, otherwise, yeah. That's the best place to go get them. I agree with you because by the time you get them in the shops, I look at them and people buy them like, oh my God, they're dead. Right, <laughs> or, they're, right. or they've been frozen before. So, Well, this has been all kinds of fun, Rosetta. I am, uh, I'm really happy that you've been on the show and, and I, you should tell people, uh, obviously you can buy My Calabria and your other books on Amazon or from you directly, mm -hmm. but tell everybody where they can find you uh, online best place is um my website it's cooking with rosetta and i have my cooking classes listed there because I, I teach uh cooking classes and i also have my culinary tour so i take people to uh puglia calabria and sicily uh so i have my 2023 tours uh posted so if anyone is interested let me know because well some of them are already sold out but i'll have to release room soon if uh, unused rooms, if, um, you know, by, by January on some of them. So if they want to join me and taste the real food there, I'm happy to take them. On Instagram, you are uh, Rosetta Costantino, right? Uh, yes. On Instagram, it's under Rosetta Costantino. And on, I think on Facebook, which I don't really post anymore, um, it's under Cooking with Rosetta. Gotcha. I will, I will put all of these links in the show notes so people can find you. Okay. Well, thank you. It was a lot of fun. We, we could talk quite a bit. So, Well, that is our show this week. I'm your host, Hank Shaw. We are sponsored by Filson and Foraged Market. Thank you so much for spending part of your day with us. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed recording it for you. You can find me on social media at Instagram. I am at HuntGatherCook. And my website is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. You can find that at the URL huntgathercook.com. Hope you have a good week. Hope you get to do something in the outdoors. Hope you get to preserve something to enjoy later in the year. Thanks again so much for being part of this podcast. I'm Hank Shaw, and I'll talk to you soon.